0: Our Father, we thank you for giving us this Lord's Day to begin our week with. Lord, you have called us out of this world, and today we consider that calling, what it means. What it means that you've made our calling effectual by your word and spirit. Lord, we ask for your grace as we enter this teaching hour, that it would encourage us. And Lord, that it would not stand just to um, enlighten our minds alone, but to edify our souls and to prepare us to worship you. Uh, this morning. So with that in mind, we pray that your spirit would be with us, um, enlighten our minds and our hearts, prepare us to worship you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, before we begin, we'll um, consider an outline of the chapter, uh, what its kind of main teachings are. Um, But first, the first thing we'll discuss is the doctrine of the effectual calling versus um, something That might stand alone to some people, which is irresistible grace, um, you know, one of the five points of Calvinism, how they kind of differ, but also how they're similar. We'll also discuss um, each paragraph individually. So the definition of what the effectual call is and then how God calls effectually, what the manner is of that effectual call. Um, what elect infants are? What is the state of, of infants when they die? E- elect infants, that is. Um, the confession actually kind of really turns pastoral in that paragraph to consider that question. And then um, the fourth paragraph, the fate of the non-elect in relation to the effectual calling. Um, how are we to consider those who are um, unreached or those who, are, who have not been preached to? or those who have been preached to and are, uh, are without the, um, the effectual call of God. So we'll consider all of these things as the confession uh, lays them out. But first, um, a lot of people might think of the effectual call in relation to one of the five points of Calvinism. Um, TULIP is the acronym, so you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace here, and perseverance of the saints Um, a lot of people might confuse irresistible grace as the same thing as effectual calling. And while they're definitely linked and in agreement, um, the the doctrine of the effectual call is is a lot more developed and robust than than the mere point in an acronym. Uh, So to define irresistible grace, for instance, Joel Beakey he defines it as uh, the doctrine in which the Holy Spirit never fails to bring his own to faith. So all of God's elect people will eventually come to faith. That is the doctrine. And, and we agree with that as Reformed Particular Baptists. The confession here agrees with that. But um, the confession goes deeper. So this, this doctrine of, the, of irresistible grace, it is helpful, it is true, but it is too general. It's too general. Uh, it's true of confessional teaching, but it doesn't represent the more developed soteriology of the confession as well as the more developed soteriology, which followed the, the five points of Calvinism. That, that was a, it was a response to error at the time, but the Reformed Confessions, like our own, followed that, built upon it, and developed it further. So it's not, we can't um, relegate God's effectual call to one point in the five points of Calvinism. Um, I think a helpful way to begin considering the, this chapter of the Confession is uh, question 34 of our catechism. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Well, amen. That is um, a beautiful doctrine, and and you can see how it... um, it's much deeper, much more robust than merely saying that all of the elect will come to faith, though true. Well, another thing we should consider before moving on is just how the confession lays forth the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. Um, there are kind of three, three stages in which it's presented, and this is the classic, reformed, and uh, really patristic way of viewing salvation. So first, uh, the confession lays forth the doctrine of the pactum salutis. This is the agreement or covenant of salvation. Um, so this is a um, this is how salvation is decreed from eternity past between the persons of the Trinity. And this was laid forth in chapter 3 of the confession with the decree of God. And chapter 7 in um, the doctrine of the covenant. Then you have the historia salutis, the history of salvation. So, How um, salvation is worked out in the history of of mankind, in the history of God's people, the Israelites, um, in the history of uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, The history of mankind was recapitulated, repeated in Christ, and fulfilled in him. Um, So we see this laid forth, chapters 4 through 6, so creation, providence, the fall. Um, We also see this in chapter 8, which covers Christology, so how the history of salvation is, is repeated and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And then the third stage, which we are now um, considering, beginning to consider this morning, uh, the Confession lays forth the doctrine of, of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. And the, um, here in chapter 10, it begins with the effectual call and really goes through chapter 20, and you can consider every chapter from here on as a part of what we consider the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. Um, but it begins with the effectual call. That is, that is the first um, stage in our salvation which we experience. Uh, we, we really cannot con- um, understand one of these apart from the other. We can't understand the history of salvation, creation, fall, uh, redemption, consummation. We can't understand that apart from the, uh, the eternal covenant of salvation. We also can't understand our own experience of salvation, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, we can't understand that apart from the history of salvation or from God's eternal covenant of salvation. So these are all linked, and this is how the confession presents soteriology. So with that in mind, we can turn to consider uh, paragraph one of chapter 10. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His Almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. Well, uh, to define the effectual call, the confession says that at the appointed time, God calls his predestined people by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation. So what we see here to begin with is that uh, there are are two means of calling. Both are necessary. It says by his word and his spirit. So we have an outward call. So the preaching of God's word, that is the outward call which is made effectual in the lives of believers. Then we have the the inward call, which is the work of the Spirit in in our calling, which includes regeneration and conversion. Now, this word calling, uh, we have to understand it in the context that the confession was written. So today, in in, more modern treatments of the Reformed doctrine of salvation, calling is usually distinct from regeneration and conversion. And while that, that is true to an extent, uh, the Puritans, the particular Baptists at the time, um, the writers of the Westminster Confession, they understood calling um, more as a collective of, of the call of regeneration, of conversion. Um, they included these, these all-in-one in their treatment of the effectual call. Not that they can't be distinguished, because clearly they, they do distinguish uh, these, these stages, uh, but we do need to keep that in mind um, as we go forward. And to bring back this this idea of the order of salvation, um, we can see in scripture a key proof text for this paragraph, uh, Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we can see that um, here uh, in Romans, predestination precedes uh, calling. Calling precedes justification. Justification precedes glorification. Um, And that's something that that they really built this doctrine of calling, effectual calling upon. So um, now we have to consider what makes the the call of God effectual in the lives of believers. Well, first, there's a a rational understanding of the gospel. It's it's reasonable in the the life the mind of the believer. Uh, They say, the enlightening of their minds, spiritually and savingly, to understand the things of God. So it's not just that God calls someone and they uh, magically, uh, they're, they're believers, they can't really understand why. No, it's, it's understandable. We, we think of faith as, as a knowledge of the gospel, as a scent of the gospel, as trust. Um, so when the, the calling is made effectual, it is a true, reasonable, rational understanding of, of our minds to understand the things of God. It also includes regeneration, as I said. Um, We're given a a heart of flesh and our old heart of stone is removed. Think of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The circumcision of the heart is in view. Ezekiel 36, we have the promise of the new covenant that um, God's people, his elect people, their heart of stone is taken out and they're given a heart of flesh. We also have the renewal of the human will. Uh, If you recall last week, um, Chris taught on uh, the free will of man <clears throat> and here we see that the human will is renewed to true freedom uh, the will is free but it is bound by its desires and in the effectual call god reorders our desires he redirects them towards the things of god uh, it's not that um, he does harm to our, our free will our free will is bound already because of the fall it is that he again he redirects our, our desires so that we do freely come to him by his grace and as the, the confession said in that paragraph, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. It is, it is not that, um, you know, the, the typical understanding of Calvinism today is that there's no such thing as free will. But that's not what the confession teaches, is that the free will is bound and um, that it requires God's grace to redirect our desires in order that we freely come to God. Uh, Psalm 110.3, they use this as a proof text. Your people will, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Um, it's not your people, you will call your people and they will turn to you though they, they don't want to. No, God, God changes our desires. Um, his people do come to him freely in the gospel. Yes, Pastor Nathan. Yeah,
1: I really like that statement. God transforms us as you said redirects our desires, and we see him as beautiful, mm-hmm. as as merciful, as loving, and and we it is of our own will that we then pursue him, that we flee to him. You know, yeah. it's kind of like Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is he gonna do when the breath enters his lungs again? Is he just, you know? He's gonna get up. He's gonna yeah. get out of the tomb, um, and he made that decision himself. Mm-hmm. Although it was Christ who gave him that new life, and you know, those are careful distinctions I think are important so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that we're robots. Yeah. That God is forcing Himself upon us in a way that we are entirely passive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True in regeneration, but not in, of course, coming to Him in faith.
0: Yeah yeah God initiates our salvation, but we do freely come to Him. And when I, I remember when I came here as a, as a freshman at Covenant and even this church, my view is that there's no such thing as the free will. like I'm a Calvinist, but all I knew of was the five points, and which is not it's, it's helpful, but it's not robust enough. And, and here the confession, there's a much more robust um, doctrine of the human will, of God's sovereignty of, of salvation um, and, and even at Covenant, I was surprised when I heard professors there speaking of a compatibilist view of, of God's sovereignty and man's free will in salvation. Um, at the time, I thought that was that's synergism, that's Arminianism, but there's more, there's more nuance there. Uh, well, are there any questions at this point? Um, that's, uh, it can be controversial to, to consider the free will of man and God's sovereignty in the, the call. Why is this how is this a comforting doctrine that um that God calls us effectually to him? Yeah, here. I heard some teaching by Stephen Lawson on this this week, and if it were not for God calling us, we would all be in hell. Yeah. So it's merciful that he does that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, amen. It is uh we're actually gonna get get into this at the kind of the end of the chapter, but our hope in this whole this whole chapter is that God is merciful and loving toward His people. Um, that is the, the the key point of this uh, this chapter. Yeah, Kim. Yeah. I can gain my own salvation. I
1: could also lose my salvation. There was no comfort in that. There was always a doubt. There was always a memory. Mm. Knowing then now that, that God is the one who effectually calls us and we depend fully on Christ, yeah.
0: um, that is what brings the comfort in the world. Mm. Yeah, amen. Yeah, and, and the next uh, paragraph we're going to. Consider how, how God calls us most free, or calls us out of His most free and special grace. It is that's a, that's the comfort in the effectual call. That it's not our own, it's not our, our, of our own volition. It's of God's. Well, then um, I'll read chapter uh, chapter ten, paragraph two. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Well, here we have the manner of the effectual calling presented um, more clearly. Now, while the confession, again, upholds free will, it guards, it guards us, it guards its writers from... Any sort of semi-Pelagian view of salvation that um, that in salvation God and man work together to initiate Um, salvation—it's very clear God is the initiator of of our salvation of in the effectual call, Uh, as as it states of God's free and special grace alone—and goes on and says without any co-working with His special grace in our natural state we are helpless. and again, going back to what we were just discussing, that is why we need God to, to transform our souls to give us a new heart with new desires. But there's this uh, very popular idea that well, God helps those who help themselves. This was a very famous statement by Benjamin Franklin. Um, it was just, but it wasn't just him. I mean, this was, in the time of the writing of this confession, modern philosophies and thinking about, about God um, we're developing into um, a sort of, a sort of uh, yeah, God helps those who help themselves, which we can see today in, in teachings like prosperity, uh, gospel teachings, where, well, God wants you to be happy and rich and have such and such, but you have to do that, and, and God will help you. God promises to, to help you in those efforts, and he'll bless you in those. Or even in, in our own circles, we might, um, we might consider, well, uh, typically, we're, we're very patriotic, and we think, well, as Americans, we pull ourselves up by our, by our bootstraps, and we might kind of get confused when we think about salvation. Well, we get into to legalism, and we need to believe that, or not believe, but uh, we need to live by such and such a standard that ultimately we, our, our doctrine of salvation gets confused and, um, and merges our own works with, with God's grace. Arthur Pink, on the other hand, he has a helpful um, statement kind of rebutting this idea that God helps those who help themselves. He wasn't um, explicitly a a Reformed Baptist, but he largely agreed with the theology of our confession. Um, He states, to declare that God helps those who help themselves is to repudiate one of the most precious truths taught in the Bible and in the Bible alone, namely that God helps those who are unable to help themselves. Who tried again and again only to fail. To say that the sinner's salvation turns upon the action of his own will is another form of the God dishonoring dogma of salvation by human efforts. In the final analysis, any movement of the will is a work, it is something from me, something which I do. But the doctrine the doctrine of God's sovereignty lays the axe at the root of this evil tree by declaring, It is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, Romans nine, sixteen. Now, he's speaking here of the will. His point is that um, we cannot will our own salvation, we cannot initiate our own salvation by, by our own will prior to God calling us to him. Um, that is to, to turn our salvation into a works-based salvation rather than a salvation based on God's grace. Well, again, in this uh, paragraph, we have a uh, presentation of a, another inward and outward distinction of the call. It uh, states being quickened, which means being made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. This is the, the inward call of God, uh, the spirit's regenerative power in believers. And they also present the outward call, which is the preached word, and able to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. So again, the call is inward and outward. We can't separate the two. Uh, if you have one without the other, um, we can't clearly call that an effectual call. Man is effectually made willing to embrace the gospel by the Spirit's grace. So hearing the gospel alone is not uh, what saves us. The Spirit entering us, um, the Spirit calls us as we hear the preached word. It is, there's an inward call and an outward call together, which is made effectual. Uh, James Renahan, in his commentary on this uh, paragraph, says that there is no human agency in the conversion experience. There is certainly divine instrumentality without which no one would come to faith. What does he mean by, by divine instrumentality? What do you think he means there? Yes, that's, that's part of it. Um, he, he uses means in, in bringing us to salvation. Uh, he uses means. So, recall chapter 5 on providence. Oh, Sam. The so I yeah. It's like the to causes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, previously in the confession and um, the chapter on providence, the idea of causality was introduced. So, there are first causes. Um, God is the first cause. And there are second causes, which is um, essentially, that God uses means in bringing about this first cause. Um, so, in salvation being God's first cause, He uses means and the ordinary means, in particular, are what He uses to call us in the Gospel. This, uh, this paragraph is really going against both the Arminians of the day, so General Baptists, and uh, Roman Catholics of the day, and who were based, based their salvation, their view of salvation, on late medieval developments. Both of these are synergistic. They uh, bring together the, the will of man and the will of God prior to man's conversion. Um, and that, is a, that is a form of works-based salvation, essentially. Two key texts to consider here that they um, relied on. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, um, Paul speaks of man in his natural state who is unable to understand the things of God. The natural person, he says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But praise be to God. Uh, Paul, in another place, in Ephesians, um, gives us hope that though we are helpless in our natural state, God has grace. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God has not left us in our natural fallen state. He has promised that in the new covenant we are given a new heart, new desires, and we will come to him, be made effectual by the Spirit. Paragraph 3 is where it gets pretty controversial. Uh, it addresses the um, the state of elect infants. Um, <clears throat> elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. There are Two types of people in view here. First, you have uh, young children, infants, who die in infancy. And you have those, that says, all people who are elect, who are, quote, incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. This is uh, an extremely pastoral paragraph within the midst of the confession. Um, not that there aren't pastoral bits throughout, but uh, this this paragraph here really almost takes a sidebar just to consider something that back then was actually really important. Uh, Today it's, um, we don't, we we might not uh, relate to this passage as much just because infant mortality rates are far lower than they were in their time. Um, I mean, I I don't know the the exact statistics, but a large number of of children, young children, infants um, died before they could even speak. And um, so back then, this was, this was an important topic for them. For us, we probably brushed it aside because it's so uncommon. But again, it, it addresses both um, what do Christians do when, when we lose, um, when, we, when you know, a Christian woman miscarries, or when a, we lose a young child, or you have mentally disabled children who are incapable of showing any understanding of the gospel, who may not even hear the gospel words the words of the gospel. Uh, so they, they turn aside to consider this. Now, the Baptists did have a particular view here, although this paragraph was taken from both the Westminster and Savoy Declaration, who uh, both of those traditions, the Congregationalist Presbyterians, did baptize infants, of course. Um, <clears throat> but some Presbyterians, not all, some then and even today, uh, defend an idea that children of, of elect believers are saved by virtue of their, their covenant status. Um, so being baptized, if you're a baptized child of a, of a believer and you die in infancy, um, your parents have hope that you'll be saved if you die before you can show any outward understanding of the gospel. In fact, I work for a professor at Covenant, um, Dr. Meduayme, he's open about this, so this isn't like a private view of his, but he's defended in essays that if you are um you're a believer, we have hope that your children are, are automatically saved, essentially. And um, I've, I've talked to him about it. He knows I disagree with him. But uh, the Baptists have a, um, a particular view here in mind. I think this view by some Presbyterians, it does confuse the distinction between one's election, um, one's state of salvation, and the sign of the covenant. Because merely by being a child of, of another believer, therefore baptized, um, outwardly in the covenant of grace this is borderline baptismal regeneration and there's a lot of errors that can arise by equating um, the covenant sign and an election and saying that you're automatically called merely by the washing of water so here are five clarifications to the Baptist understanding of this yeah pastor nathan
1: Yeah. Yeah. and that's inherent in infant baptism as a whole that there is a presumption that the child is safe, or yeah. the child will be saved mm-hmm. which is um, you know we might say that God ordinarily works through families or often does mm-hmm. but um, there's certainly no certainty to that there's certainly no promise in scripture yeah. of that um, and it's very dangerous to raise your children assuming that they're going to be saved or they are saved and uh, thus leads you to the, the depraved total rapies yeah. yeah but uh, I think Presbyterians and Baptists discuss this issue also I tend to ask them so they'll often argue well what happens to miscarried children mm-hmm. or what happens to the mentally disabled in your view if they been talking to us
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, they are without hope um, I'll often ask them, "Well, what gives them hope?" That, yeah. In your view, yeah, <laughs> is it baptism itself? Yeah. Thus, you're you're you know you're making a rite, a ritual, or something effectual, or is it their covenantal status? And almost every time, without exception, they'll say, "Well, their covenantal status." Mm-hmm. Of course, my reply to that is, "Well, my children are believers; those that you know miscarried or whatever, so it doesn't really matter in yeah. your view." and mm-hmm. you and my children are the same too, whether they're baptized or not. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense why you were baptize them. That's a whole lot of the special. Yep. But then the next few is, well, what happens to the children of dying
0: in the sea of unbelievers? Yeah,
1: exactly. And then they don't have, no, so, are not consistent. Because their view then says, basically says, if you miscarriages and abortions and the mentally disabled, the unbelievers have no hope. Yeah. And that's a position that I'm not really going to Yep. And that's the position that our confession is right. Yeah. Because they don't ascribe it to as covenantal family or status. Mm-hmm. They ascribe it as you are teaching yeah. to the sovereignty and in, in blood yeah. of God. And there's much more comfort in that oh, yeah. than trying to determine who's in the covenantal mm-hmm. line based upon lineage. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it really undermines the whole doctrine of effectual calling to even um, make those claims and um, we actually as Baptists have more hope than, than someone who ties the hope of, of elect infants to the covenant sign um, and of course there, there is some reason to think that you know, the 60 the something million babies who have been aborted that we know of in America, there's some hope that we can have that many of them are probably saved because of God's mercy and love but again we don't base it on a presumption of a covenant of a, an external sign we base it on God's free grace because he's more loving than we could ever imagine. Um, uh, He is more merciful than than we know. So, uh, the first clarification, again, salvation is a free gift to all. It's not based on a covenant sign. It's not based on on your own works. Second clarification is that there is a a distinction that the Baptists and and really all Reformed make between one sin nature, that they are corrupt, born in sin in Adam, and actual sins, the sins that they act upon. Now, This by no means um, opens the door for someone who's born with a sin nature and yet never sinned is is saved. But it's a distinction that the Baptists, I believe, held uh, more firmly. Also, there's no so-called age of accountability or or age of infancy. We can't nail down when an infant is no longer an infant. Or um, someone like John MacArthur, very well known today in in Calvinistic reformed circles, he has defended an age of accountability and yet he won't, nail, he won't tell you what that age is. He says, you know, it's different for, for every person. But we don't see that in scripture and that's, um, again, it's not logical if you believe that God effectually calls sinners by his grace. Um, number four, the fourth implication or clarification is that our election precedes calling, which includes regeneration and conversion. So, Just because we can't outwardly see the regeneration or conversion of a believer, they can't confess with their mouth or their lips, doesn't mean that God's spirit has not um, effectually called them to him. And fifth, again, God is merciful. He loves us. He loves our children even more than we ever could. So even if we had, hypothetically, a child die in infancy who was not elect, even then God is more merciful than we know. And yet we can have hope that God is, is merciful, loving, and that he could even have grace on, on an infant who could never confess uh, belief in Christ. Are there any questions? I know that's a very controversial, uh, really difficult um, thing to consider, but it's important. And it's, again, in their context, this was much more important than we might think of, of it today. Yeah, Kim? Just a Yeah, amen.
1: Yeah, I think that it comes down to trust because the scriptures don't answer it explicitly. Mm. I think we have good indication to assume God is just, he does what is right, he is good. I think personally that we have good reason to believe that those dying in, Question that says, Look, they're not going to, if they do, if they are in heaven, they're not in heaven because they're innocent. Yeah. And really, that, the, that question is answered in the fact that they died. Mm-hmm. If they were innocent, they would not die. Yeah. Because death is the curse and mm-hmm. punishment for sin. That's a good point. Yeah. So um, they are not innocent, but even still, the hope that we have is that God is just, and so if and those who are saved, United, see, are saved by the blood of Christ, yeah. no less than we are.
0: Mm. Amen. Yeah. Jay, what do you think of David's confidence when he'll see his his child, his
1: best sheep, and his best sheep? in heaven? I feel like that's common.
0: Yeah, I mean i I think I think I would I would be that. In a similar context, as Pastor Nathan just uh, presented it. I mean, we can have we can have confidence in those things based on, on God's mercy and grace, not um, not presuming off of off of the things that we see, off of uh, a lack of of seen faith by us. Um, but I'd have to I'd have to think about that more. Um, yeah. one of the most
1: important passages I think about this. Mm I really think that passage is there for a reason uh, for something like this. Yeah. Uh, Where you can have hope. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think think David's saying, I will see my child on the other side. I think that's such an important passage in this one. Because it does give people, when you're holding your your dead child, Mm -hmm. that you can have hope and merciful God. No matter what you did,
0: you didn't do anything. Right, yeah. But based on the mercy and love of God, God, yeah.
1: I've heard, uh, one, I think it was R.C. Grohl say that, um, it, it was his, it's a own belief in speculation, it's not something grounded firmly in scripture, but I believe it was him who said, you know, um, I do believe that the number of the elect will outnumber those in hell, mm. and if you look at the way, you know, the is the, the narrow, right? That <laughs> leads to life, the way is narrow, um, see that most of the world is descending into hell but if you consider the fact that what about the miscarriages the abortion, the mentally disabled yeah. those are redeemed yeah. then there's no doubt uh, that the yeah. redeemed will outnumber the damned. Oh, yeah. uh, I thought that was an interesting speculation. Again, it goes back to the fact that it is largely a mystery but we know God is good, we know he's just and we know that good will
0: conquer in the end, mm-hmm. even if we can't all the eyes and all the deeds. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, finally, um, let's consider the last paragraph here, paragraph four. Uh, it addresses the non-elect. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operation of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ. And therefore cannot be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved. But they never so diligently to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. Well here there are two groups again being addressed in this paragraph. The first are those who are under the preached word. Those who um, we could even say partake in the worship of God to a degree. And then those who are unreached or or even unpreached uh, peoples. Uh, The confession says that, uh, regarding the first group, these are those who may be called by the ministry of the word. So they receive an outward call of the gospel and the preaching of Christ. Um, But there's no spiritual effect. There's no inward calling. And again, without the spirit, it cannot be made effectual. Um, Now, There's some confusing language in this paragraph. Uh, What is meant by the common operations of the Spirit? Well, the text that they were relying on here was Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 5. Uh, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, this passage is, um, is pretty debated on whether it's speaking of those who were once truly believers who were once called and then fell away from the faith or whether they to some degree did partake in uh, the heavenly gift uh, and share in the Holy Spirit and yet were never truly called to begin with. Um, In other words, or at least what the Baptists believe about this passage was that um, speaking of those whose lives are outwardly reformed by the, the preaching of the word but inwardly remain corrupted, so outwardly they seem to um, to be reformed by the law of God even, and yet inwardly in the end, they show that they were never um, truly truly called by the Spirit. And we have biblical examples of this. you have Judas Iscariot. he was called as a disciple of Christ, and yet in the end he uh, fell away. Herod, who uh, seemingly uh, by John the Baptist preaching, seemingly was kind of scared he he had some reverence for John the Baptist, but yet there's no sign that he was, he was a real believer and Then, even Felix under uh, the preaching of, of Paul at uh, Caesarea Philippi. Um, these are all examples of, of those who are outwardly reformed to a degree and yet um, had some fear of God in general, but no knowledge of Christ truly. Um, even Judas, who was alongside Christ, he did not know Christ uh, spiritually. But the central reality of this paragraph, and I think this is important as we turn to worship this morning, the central reality here is that that those without the preached word or without the preached word in the world at all, there is no hope uh, of of God effectually calling sinners. So as we turn to worship, on the flip side, there's great comfort for those who do have the word preached, who can hear, understand, believe the call of God uh, this morning, Um, and and though there are, um, there will be those uh, possibly present this morning who are not effectually called, we as believers, if you are uh, a believer, if you are a member of Christ's Church, if you are baptized, you can't have hope. those are signs that do give you assurance of the effectual call um, of, in your life. Uh, well, before we uh, close the Lord of Prayer, are there any final questions on God's effectual call? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that uh, person
1: on, yeah. well, that's, that's what go to right there. Mm-hmm. But as Karen said, the fact that God has any mercy, us, God is still just. Yeah. Just because that person doesn't hear not That Oh, yeah. Be the one that I'd
0: say, See, God, yeah. And totally hmm Amen. And, and yeah, even, even modern Catholics, you know, after Vatican II, they believe that, well, if you have some knowledge of God, um, of, of a deity, and you respect the, the natural law, then God can have mercy on you and save you because, on, by virtue of that rather than by virtue of his grace. And it's the same issue at heart there that um, it bases it on the, the work, the will of man as the initiator of salvation um, rather than his mercy and love. Mm. Yeah.
1: baptism mm-hmm. through covenant families um, but it is there are hard things to trust yeah. yeah and I think the, where our homeless found is when we fix our eyes on God in that situation mm-hmm. we tend to fix our eyes
0: Melanie, did you have a comment? feel you hear the inward call to it to speak of it that way mm, yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah very very religious very um outwardly reformed or conformed to some law of god but yeah inwardly corrupted yeah all right well um let's uh before we enter the worship of god let's go to him and pray. our as we consider these um profound truths of how you save us, and even the, the mysteries of your love and mercy, despite um, the sufferings and trials we face in this world, Lord, we, we know that you are, are merciful and loving. You are love itself, and we cling to that, that hope, this morning as we enter worship. And Lord, as you have effectually called us as your church, I pray that you would call us by the gospel this morning remind us this morning of um, what you have called us to as we enter a new week. Lord, uh, prepare us for, for the age to come, the life everlasting, um, the day in which you will call our bodies uh, to the resurrection, uh, the final resurrection, and, and <clears throat> Lord, fix our eyes on that this morning, fix our eyes on Christ, we pray this in his name, amen. Amen.